0: Good everyone, it is Dave Dean here, and it is a joy to be with you. Um, If you don't know me, my my wife and I, we've just spent some time away in uh, the UK overseas. Uh, I did some study over there, and my wife, she she did some work, at least up until uh, the time that we had our little baby boy, uh, little Asher. And uh, he is such a little delight. I can't wait for you to meet him as we get back together and meet up um, in person and, and get to see each other face to face. It's going to be a reunion, not just for the deans, but for all of us, because this has been such a bizarre season of time away from one another. But I'm truly looking forward to that moment when we get to catch up in community. Um, Terry's asked me to, to speak today to you, and it's, it's a privilege, as always. It's probably more difficult speaking to people uh, at the church that I know uh, that I've been to for many years because you know me so well um, and you know my faults but in a sense that's also uh, there's a sweetness about that because you do know me and the fellowship here is deep and so uh, it is an honor and a privilege um, even if it's a challenge and and I hope and trust that the word that the Lord has laid on my heart this week um, blesses you and encourages you I know it has for me My assignment today um, is really quite simple. Um, Preach something from the Bible related to apologetics. That's what Terry said. (laughs) So as I was uh, thinking and praying through what to share, I came to this text in 2 Corinthians, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that talks about being ambassadors for Christ. So if you have your Bibles, please open them up there to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. or scroll to them, whatever device you're looking on. And we're going to take a look at two verses, verses 18 through 20. If you're a note-taker, I've titled this talk, The Highest Calling, and I've divided it into really two main parts. The first is the compelling love of Christ, and underneath that we have two two points. The compelling love of Christ, it changes how we see, and it changes who we are. And the second is the ministry of reconciliation. And you'll see why we're concerned with this idea of reconciliation as as we get going, because in these two verses here, in 2 Corinthians 5:18 to 20, this idea of reconciliation is repeated over and over and over again by Paul. So let's take a quick look. 2 Corinthians 5:18 to 20. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, And has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So let's look first of all at this compelling love of Christ. Verse 18 We see these words All these things are of God. What's all these things? What's the all these things here? Well, this phrase, it points us back to the immediately preceding verses here, uh, starting at verse 14, 14 right through to 17, where Paul describes the total transformation that takes place at the moment of Conversion when somebody becomes a Christian, when they are reconciled to God. So I'm being a little bit sneaky here. I said that we're going to look at two verses, 18 through 20. But in order to understand 18 through 20, we need to back up and really start from verse 14. And in these verses, I think we find what I'm calling here, the highest calling. In order to understand what that is, we need to look at these verses. So let's do that. Verse 14, we read, For the love of Christ compels us Because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So check this out. Paul says that the love of Christ compels us as Christians to live no longer for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again. In other words, the love of Jesus manifest in his death And resurrection compels Christians to that same end, to Christ likeness, which is death and resurrection. You see, when the Bible talks about love, it doesn't do it in some vague Hollywood Greco-Roman pagan sense of this idea that's bigger than the both of us. Us, 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 you know, like the movies. I mean, the very first time you find the word love used in the Bible, it's Genesis 22, where God says to Abraham, take your son Isaac, whom you love, up that mountain and offer him there as a sacrifice. That passage isn't at all about child sacrifice. As you go on to read, you see that God provides a ram and Isaac lives. The whole purpose of that entire narrative there is to spotlight what the love of God looks like in action. It's sacrificial. It is self-giving. And what we see there with Abraham and Isaac is a microcosm, a shadow, a type of the ultimate example of God's love for us seen in the person of Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son into this world, so that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. We know that verse. We love it. That is what the love of God looks like in action. When the Bible speaks about love, it doesn't use ethereal, kind of mysterious, vague, ambiguous terms like the movies. It, It uses the word in tangible, concrete ways by showing you what love looks like in action. It's all about action. Biblical love, which is true love, is not just a word it's a deed it's what brought God the God of the universe into a crib in a cattle shed and moved him to the cross of Calvary and out of Joseph's tomb that same love is the love that compels you and I in our evangelism in our being ambassadors for Christ in what way how does the love of Christ in his death and resurrection how does that compel us Well, to die to ourselves and to to live for Christ. I mean, Paul doesn't say that you're simply inclined or advised or given the option to die to yourself and to live with Christ. No, 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 no. He says you're if you're a Christian, the love of Christ compels you to die and to live for Christ. You have this inward compulsion in your innermost being to die to yourself and to live for Jesus. You're dead. Jesus lives in you. That's what Paul is saying here. Paul describes it clearly in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the symbolic expression of baptism in a propositional statement. The going down, the going under of the water, the full immersion under the water, that's the death to self. And the rising up, the coming out of the water, that's the resurrection life. That is the new life. It's not our life. It's the life of Christ because he's the one in whom we are resurrected. So, you know, I chose this text. Seen this, you know this phrase, ambassadors for Christ. Thinking this is this is good. This is what Terry wants. It's, it's all about evangelism. I could bring in some apologetics. I could bring in some cool stories from our time overseas. We had some incredible times over there. Incredible um, moments of outreach and evangelism where I could just, you know, um, I could t- talk to you all night about some of those stories. But but as I started to get into this text and started to ask myself, what the heck are the, all these things here mentioned in verse eighteen? And as I've backed up a little bit to verse 14, I started to see that this passage is about evangelism. But before it's about evangelism to people out there, it's, it's about evangelism to myself. It's about evangelism to myself. As a one of Christ, as a Christ one, as a Christian. Why? Because an evangelist an ambassador for Christ, before we engage in the ministry of reconciliation, we must ourselves first be reconciled to God. That's why the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was and is the single most supreme act of self-giving love. And it's that love which captures us as Christians. It's that love which compels us as Christians to evangelistic action. There is no ministry of reconciliation apart from the minister who is themselves reconciled to God through Christ. The ministry of reconciliation in preaching the word of reconciliation is the fruit of our own reconciliation as Christians. That's why we had to come back here. The implication is that it is in the very nature of a Christian to be an evangel, to be an ambassador for Christ, because we can't help it. The love of Christ compels us. It pressures us into evangelistic action like this forceful controlling factor over our lives, in our lives, leaving us with no choice but to say no to ourselves and yes to Jesus. We are moved by a love that expels egocentrism and compels Christocentrism. What's that? I mean, what's Christocentrism? It's a cross, it's self giving. It's sacrifice. It's suffering. It's thankless. It's tiring. It's lonely. It's giving forgiveness when forgiveness isn't due to the mocker. It's turning the other cheek. It's self denial. It's faithful obedience. It's doing justice. It's hopeful. It's loving. And oh, by the way, it's life-giving because the love of Christ doesn't end at the cross, but with an empty tomb. Verse 15, he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and for them, who died for them and rose again. If you need to take a moment right now and just go check yourself before the Lord, then take it. Please do. I mean that. Turn off this screen, whatever device you're watching this on, and go take that moment. Because if you keep on reading with us here, if we keep on going through this together, you're not going to have an excuse anymore. Because I, I believe that the Scripture teaches that we're judged in proportion to what we know. You know, I actually uh, went away to a, a camp the other week, and I had the opportunity to speak to a bunch of Year 12 students about Jesus. And it was fascinating because in one of the feedback forms um, this girl said I came here a Christian and I'm leaving a non-Christian because what I thought was Christianity wasn't Christianity. And and what you shared um, I'm not ready to commit to that. At least she's been honest with the truth. But having heard we are without excuse and it's a fearful thing. It is truly terrifying to be preaching this stuff to you and I'm not saying that just for effect. This gets to me because it is hard to look at these truths and to ask yourselves these questions like am i compelled by the love of christ like this am i really willing to go out there and self-sacrifice in the sense that paul is talking here because if we're not compelled by the love of christ we have to ask ourselves do we know christ and if we don't know Christ, we don't know God. We're not a Christian. How in God's name can we say that we know Christ and not be compelled by his love? The answer is you can't because Jesus is God and there is no other name given among them by which we must be saved. When the human race um, saw Jesus Christ, We did not look at him and and choose him as our (laughs) saviour. In that garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, Father, it is your will to, to which I will submit. I don't want to go to the cross, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus willingly submitted himself to God the Father and went to the cross. And here's the key doctrinal phrase. He did that as our substitute. The terror that made him sweat drops of blood in the garden wasn't the fact that the stripes he was about to endure would tear open his back. It wasn't that the nails would be driven through his hands and his feet as he hung on a post of wood. It was the reality of that profound, holy, awful mystery that on that cross for a time, there was an irreconciliation between Jesus and his father. So that you and I, through that act of irreconciliation, could be reconciled to God to be a Christian is not just to have hellfire insurance we cannot talk in any meaningful sense about a resurrection unless we acknowledge a death we cannot talk about a Christian life unless we acknowledge the death of our own selves in some sense we have to face it and that's a terrifying thing so again if you need that moment turn off this screen and go take that moment But, you know, as I'm sitting here and I'm saying out loud, it's a terrifying thing because I don't know if I love Jesus like that. Am I compelled? Look at what I'm doing. I'm talking about my ability to love. This isn't about my ability to love. This isn't about my lovability or the loveliness of other people that I encounter. This is all about the love of Christ. The love of Christ that compels us. Not my ability to love. It's the love of Christ that compels us. This is a beautiful thing because we're looking here at 2 Corinthians. But if you back up and look at 1 Corinthians, it starts off with these really cool statements by Paul about how he's boasting in his weakness. Where I am weak, God is strong. Where my faithfulness looks like Peter, who denied Jesus three times. The faithfulness of Christ walked into the cross. All of the other disciples scattered like Boy Scouts And yet it was to him that he gave the commission to bring the good news to the nations. God delights in confounding the wisdom and the strength of this world by the weak things. So where our love fails, his doesn't. And it's his love that compels us. Paul continues, Verse 16 through 17. By the way, we're still unpacking that little first sentence there in verse 18. All of these things. What are all of these things? Well, he continues on here. Verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Okay, so the love of Christ, it compels us to die to ourselves and to live with Christ. And we see in these two verses some of what that looks like. First, verse 16, the compelling love of Christ, the dying to self and living with Him, it changes how we see. We regard no one according to the flesh. It changes our worldview. And second, verse 17, the compelling love of Christ in dying to self and living with Him changes who we are. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. It changes the world that we view. So first, Jesus' death and resurrection changes how we see. It changes our worldview. I cannot help but marvel at the fact that this is Paul, right? Look at the way he describes this, changing the way we see. We don't regard people according to the flesh. What happened at Paul's conversion? Here's road, wrote Acts chapter 9. You can read about it there. Paul came face to face with the resurrected Jesus, the God incarnate, resurrected. He came face to face with him on that road, and he was blinded by the sight. That's like the death to self stuff. He was just dead in the way he saw this world. He had no choice in the matter. He had this controlling force over him, over the way he saw, this compulsion, which meant that he couldn't see reality like he used to. He was blind. But then what happens after he meets Ananias? He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And we read these words, Acts nine eighteen. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. And he rose, and he was baptized. That's living in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in the new life. That's coming up out of the water. Let me say this to any you know, philosophers out there. When you become a Christian, you get a new epistemology. A true encounter with Jesus changes the way you see. You think differently. You reflect differently. You value differently. You theorize differently. You hypothesize differently. Everything you know, you now know in and through the compelling love of Christ, in and through the lens of his death and resurrection. How so? Well, Paul mentions two ways right here. Verse 16. We see people differently, and we see Christ differently. Paul says, we don't see people according to the flesh, which I think means that we don't look at people the same way the world does, judging by outward appearances, their physical looks, their social or economic status, their culture, their language, their ethnic background. A Christian isn't concerned with these kinds of things. There is no Jew or Greek, no slave or free, no male or female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. That's not an elimination of distinctives. Right, as, though, as though you could use that passage to justify something like same-sex marriage or gender fluidity, which some people try to do. This is not an elimination of distinctives. It's an elimination of inequalities because of what we've already looked at there in verse 14. If one died for all, then all died. So those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him. We are one in Christ, one baptism, one family, one church, one God. This is incredible. This is what the world so desperately needs, because after all, what happens when you judge people by outward appearances? You get racial discrimination, sexual objectification, you get favoritism, you get classism, you get fraudulence. These shadows are blazed out in the glorious brilliance of the light of Christ. And don't miss, by the way, the historical significance of this, you know, I didn't give you the contextual or historical background as we started but this is it for for 2 Corinthians. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth to the believers there that he had the, to the church there and the believers there that he had founded on his missionary journey and he's giving in 2 Corinthians particularly he's given an apologia an apologetic a defense against those who were questioning his apostle apostleship. There were people in the church there that had judged him based upon his outward appearances, which by Greco standards was was so unimpressive. He looked weak to them. He was battered and broken and bruised. He wasn't eloquent in speech. He wasn't rich. He looked like a ragged, old, hungry, thirsty beggar. And Paul's like, yeah, you better believe it. That's who I am, Corinth. But you should know better because I've already written to you about this because in my weakness, it's an occasion for God's strength. For I'm faithless, he's faithful. This isn't about me. This is about him. And watch what he does with the weak. Just like the foolish cross of Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 1. It confounds the wisdom of every single age because with that one moment, we've split the calendar right to this day because it had eternal significance. Again, let's just think a little bit about Paul's conversion. He was a dude who, by his own confession, Acts 26, by his own confession, he shut up these little weird Christian sect people, you know, when he was a Jew. He shut them up. He imprisoned them. He murdered them. But he has that Damascus Road encounter with Jesus, and he sees people differently now. He sees Christians differently. The, these were his enemies. He hasn't just come to a ceasefire, they're his brothers and his sisters. His family, his enemies are his family. In fact, so intense was Paul's change of the way he saw people that in Acts, uh, sorry, Romans chapter 9, we have this shocking statement. I don't know if you've ever seen it before. Listen to this, Romans 9, 1 to 3. I tell the truth in Christ I am not lying my conscience also bearing witness in the holy spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart for I wish that I myself were accursed for Christ for my brethren my countrymen according to the flesh Paul was willing were it possible to forsake his own salvation for other people I mean seriously <laughs> I don't I'll be honest I don't love people like that. I mean, my wife, my child, sure, I I wouldn't think twice about dying for them. But like other people, I can't relate to this. But listen, that's me doing my old thing again, comparing myself to Paul as though I don't love people like that. Well, neither does Paul. This is not about Paul's ability to love. This is not about my ability to love, and it's certainly not about the lovability of some people in this world. This is about the love of Christ that compels us. This isn't about us. Paul isn't some holy roller spiritual dude that nobody can relate to. He's just a dude that needs to know Jesus like you or me. I mean, read Romans chapter 7. You can identify with that, Paul. This is not about Paul's ability to love. It's not about your ability to love. It's not about my ability to love. It's about the Love of Christ that compels us. That's what we're talking about. That's what our evangelism comes from. You see, here's the thing. To be a Christian, to be an evangelist, to be an ambassador for Christ, is to be a conduit of Christ and his self-sacrificial love. The highest calling is self-forsaking. It's Christ-likeness, which looks like death. And a Resurrection, and that 's why the notion of, of a Christian celebrity is an oxymoron, especially when it comes to evangelists, especially when it comes to evangelists. If we get what paul 's saying here, then we must say, with John the Baptizer, I must decrease that he must increase faithfulness doesn 't look like you. <laughs> Faithfulness looks like Christ flowing through you. You're a conduit. That's all. And don't miss the paradoxical beauty of that. To be active in evangelism is to be passive in receiving God's love through Christ. We forgive because we have been forgiven through Christ. We toil in ministry insofar as Christ has been ministered to us through His Spirit. And we show mercy and grace because, and insofar as God has shown mercy and grace to us through Christ, and we love people because God first loved us through Christ. The love of Christ compels us because Christ is God. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. He's the condition, the paradigm, the means, the pattern, the purpose, by whom, in whom, and through whom, and for whom we love. Some of you know um, that in the Greek there are four different words for love. We have storge, parental love. We have philia, friendship love. We have eros, romantic love. And we have agape, the love of God. 1 John 4, eight, God is love. The biblical teaching is that the first three hinge on the fourth. We love parentally, friendly and romantically because of and through the love of God, which again is self-sacrificing. Because we continue to read there in 1 John four nine. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Why? Why? Because the love of Christ compels us. You can't get sick of that statement because it is so liberating because it's not about you or me. It's all about Christ. That is both the basis of our reconciliation and for our calling as ministers of reconciliation and as ambassadors for Christ, as evangelists. I mean, if it's not the love of Christ that compels everything that we do as Christians, then what love is it? Well, if it's, if it's not Christ then it's going to be us because we haven't died to ourselves yet. The old self is still alive, which means that our love is patterned in a way that is not self-sacrificing but self-serving. And that is inherently dehumanizing because this is what it does. It looks at people in the flesh and it determines their value based upon what they can offer us. And we don't see them now as an, as an end to, In themselves as somebody made in the image of God we see them as a means to an end namely the end of our own self-satisfaction our own consumption our own gratification we judge a person by the contours of their body by the contents of their wallet and by the compliments of their lips by everything they can give to us this is the appetite of the social media Disneyland of our day that just feeds on self-satisfaction I did it my way said old Frankie (laughs) Frankie Sinatra well guess what Frankie's dead Frankie's dead and the world's still spinning we need the compelling love of Christ if our culture is messed up anywhere, it is messed up here because we don't see anything in the light of Christ because we're not compelled by the love of Christ how much praise and recognition do you need before you're going to feel secure How much porn do you need to watch before you're going to be satisfied? How much money do you need to make before you're going to be content? How many need toys and trinkets do you need before you're going to be really happy? How much success do you need before you're going to feel worthwhile? In the economy of culture, love is always a transaction. In the economy of Christ, love is a sacrifice. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ changes how we see people. But not only that, the compelling love of Christ changes who we are. It changes the reality of the world that we view. Check this out, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The death of Jesus on the cross was, again, a substitute for the penalty of our sin. But that's not all it was, because that's not all that happened. Jesus rose from the grave. His resurrection, therefore, is a substitute for our life. That's what this means. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. His death becomes our death. His resurrected life becomes our resurrected life. Now, I'm not saying here that that means that a Christian never sins, uh, that in becoming a new creature um, in the resurrected life of Jesus, a Christian somehow loses their identity and becomes like a Jesus or something. No, 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 no. Uh, it's paradoxical to the core, um, but dying, in, in dying to yourself, you actually find yourself, your true self, which was always meant to be in relationship with God, and we are in relationship with God through Christ. Again, this is not an elimination of distinctives. It's not a, an erasure of who you are. I mean, think about me, right? I'm David. I'm married to Julie. When we get married in in that union that we have, I'm still me and Julie's still Julie, but we are one. That doesn't mean I've lost my uh, distinction of who I am or who she is, but we have entered into something real. There has been a real change there in which we are now one and we continue and we move and we grow through that. It's the same here. A Christian isn't perfect. We're not like Jesus somehow. We are who we are, but we are one with him. We are really changed, and we grow in that change. That's why being called a child of God is such an apt metaphor for what it is to be a Christian, because children grow to maturity. We cha- we're, ch- we're changed. We're, we're a new creature, but we continue to change. We continue to grow in that new creatureliness. So just as the compelling love of Christ and his death and resurrection changes the way we see, it also fundamentally changes who we are. It's like this illustration that I've heard. Think about this. A man's lost. He's unconverted. He's never known the things of the Lord in his life. And one morning he gets woken up by his Kids who are fighting downstairs and, you know, he's missed his alarm clock. And as he wakes up, he's got this headache. Um, it's just it's a pounding headache because he hasn't slept because he's got this big meeting on at work in that morning. And he's super stressed and the boss, boss is breathing down his neck. He's been doing overtime in the office. He hasn't had, you know, weekends or, or evenings with his family. He has, certainly hasn't had any intimacy with his wife or with his children for a long, long, long time. Um, and he's just really not in a good place in his life. And so there he is, woken up. Um, realizing he's missed the alarm, realizing he's late for this meeting, he scrambles everything that he needs to get together. together, And he comes bellowing down the stairs, and he goes up to that door, and he starts to turn the handle, and just as he's about to go out the door to get in the car, to drive to work, to get to this meeting, he hears this come from the kitchen. Sweetie, if you're heading out, could you please take out the trash? And the man just, you know, he, his, his knuckles go white. And he lets go, and he turns around, red-faced, And he yells at his wife, Are you kidding me right now? Don't you know what's going on? Don't you know that I'm late for my meeting? You just I'm so sick and tired of this. You don't respect me at all. Do you know why I go to work every single day? It's to provide for this family. And you're wanting me to take it. You take out the trash. Are you kidding me? You take out the trash. You should do this for once. I'm sick of it. I'm so tired of you. You are so ungrateful. And, and he just, he, he turns and he goes out the door and he gets in the car and he's driving to work and he feels totally justified for the way he's behaved. You know, this man, he's, he's, he's got a justification for everything. For all the pressures that he's going through, all the problems that he has, all the anxieties, all the stress. It's his nagging wife and it's his ungrateful little children. Three months later, that same man is converted and he comes to know Jesus. I mean truly converted, like truly. He is a blood-washed, born-again child of God. And six months now after that, we have the same scenario. The man didn't get any sleep. He gets woken up by the kids. He's got a big meeting, and he's running late for. And so as he's scrambling everything together and comes running down the the, the stairs and gets to the door and opens up the door, he hears these words come from the kitchen from his dear sweet wife. Honey, if you're going to head out now, could you please make sure you take out the trash? And he turns around and he does the exact same thing. And so you ask me, you know, what's the difference? The difference is that in that moment, it's like this knife just stabs him through the heart and twists because he knows he's done the wrong thing. And he knows he should repent. But, you know, he stiffens. And he turns and he opens up the door and he gets out into the car and he drives to work. And all the while, he just feels absolutely miserable. He can't stand it any longer. He makes it to the office. He goes, and he says, boss, you need to time out. I need to take some moment. I just need to make a phone call. He gets, on the, he gets on the phone. He calls up his wife and he just begs for her forgiveness. And he repents and he says, honey, I am so sorry. What's happened? It's not that he's lost his identity. It's that the man has become a new creature with a new relationship with God and a new relationship with sin. He can't tolerate it anymore. It bothers him. Why? Because he's a new creature. You know, Charles Spurgeon, uh, he, he put it brilliantly. He talks about this um, analogy or illustration of, of a pig with two plates of food. Uh, if you put um, in, in the back of the finest restaurant, just imagine it here in Newcastle, the finest restaurant, and you put like a plate of their their most expensive meal down and then you put a a plate of just the leftover scraps and you let a pig loose. What's going to happen? Where's the pig going to go? i tell you. He's going to go straight. I know a few things about pigs. He's going to go straight up to the plate of trash and he's going to just revel in it. He's going to wiggle his little tail and he's just going to gobble it all down. He's going to delight in it. He's just going to love it. Now, Imagine if you had the power in that moment to look at that pig and change him into a man. What would happen? The head would be lifted up out of that bucket of trash and it would turn around, it would see what it's doing and it would feel sick. What used to delight the pig would would nauseate the man. And not only that, but as he looks around, he'd feel ashamed. He'd feel ashamed that he was eating trash. He can't stomach it anymore. He's a new creature. He's not a pig. Now, (laughs) Spurgeon can say that. I mean, if anyone can say it, Spurgeon can. But you know what? If that illustration offends you, you've got to realize that it describes conversion. It describes the conversion of every single person in the history of humanity that's ever been converted. Can Can you say that that's happened in your life? That the things of this world, the temporal things, the carnal things, I'm not saying that you can, you know, as a Christian, that you can avoid them all the time. I'm saying that being a new creature in Christ, as a Christian, you can't tolerate them anymore. They sicken you. They make you want to vomit. It's like if there was this red button up here, you know, right next to me that you that, that, that said, if you press this red button you'll no longer sin. If you're a Christian you would be breaking the glass on whatever device it is you're watching this video right now. You would be crawling and clawing over each other to come up here and press this red button. Why? Because you hate your sin. It sickens you. You want it to be gone. That is why. You want it to see your sin crucified. You want to see your sin stripped, beaten, naked, and, and, pay, and nailed to two planks of wood you want to hear your sin those sins and those squeals and those screams that have been crying out for your attention for so long you want to hear them get fewer and fewer and farther between as you let your sin hang there unattended and lonely on the cross suffocating under the weight of its own misery because it's been forsaken and you want to see it dead you want to see it dead. If you're a Christian, that's what you want for your sin. Because you hate it. And and look here at verse 21. That's what you have in Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Can you say that for your own life? Are you a new creature? Are you a Christian? Are you compelled by the love of Christ? Maybe I've known you for years. Maybe you've texted me this week. Maybe we're good mates. I'm talking to you as well. Do you know this kind of compelling love? Are you a Christian? Do you hate your sin? Because if you don't hate your sin, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to. I don't think you can be a Christian. Do you hate your sin? Stop. Justifying everything in your life. If you have a justification for everything in your life, you have no need for the justification of Jesus Christ. Stop reasoning your way out of reconciliation with God. Let it go. That thing, let it go. Tear down that wall. Stop it. And already, um, it's just let it go. Tear it down. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so now we come to the, the verse that we were meant to start with, verse 18. The ministry of reconciliation. I'm not even sorry that we've spent this long talking about the other stuff because we don't we won't even begin to understand what this highest calling is unless we understand that about ourselves. So look here at verse 18. Now all these things are of God, everything we've just considered, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. I truly believe that one of the greatest deceptions in the church today is the disjunct between quote-unquote full-time and part-time ministry. That disjunct is a distinction made around a paycheck. It's got nothing to do with the Christian calling to be ministers of reconciliation, to be ambassadors for Christ. If you're a Christian, it is in your very nature to be a minister. It's not a full-time or a part-time thing. It's an all-time thing because the love of Christ compels you all the time. You see, the ministry of reconciliation, the task of evangelism, it's not standing on a box down the road, yelling obnoxiously to people about how they're going to burn in hell. It's not saying the right words or sharing some little unrelatable cookie-cut gospel tract to your neighbor or to your uninterested friend. The ministry of reconciliation, hear me now, the ministry of reconciliation is not simply proclaiming the gospel as though we all know what that phrase even means. The ministry of reconciliation is your life. It's all of it. In Christ, in his resurrection, in his blazing light, compelling you to move and to change and to grow by that love that saw him to the cross. That's it. That is what the ministry of reconciliation is. It is your life if you are a blood-washed, born-again child of God. And, I mean, keep in mind the context that that Paul is writing here to these, these, these people in Corinth. He has a strained relationship with the church. He's been explaining reconciliation to them while at the same time being a minister of reconciliation by pleading that they be reconciled. Verse 20, that's what he says there. Be reconciled. So here it is in a sentence. The highest calling. The evangelistic ministry of reconciliation that every Christian is called to is one with the very message of our own reconciliation to God through Christ. I'm going to say that again. The evangelistic ministry of reconciliation that every Christian is called to is one with the very message of our own reconciliation to God through Christ. If you're a Christian, you have a new nature. And it's within that reconciled nature that you find yourself as a minister of who you are, of reconciliation. You set to task because of Jesus, who has reconciled you to God and whose love compels you. And, and so we plunge into this world. We plunge into our work. We plunge into our study. We plunge into our friends. We plunge into our families, our church, our sports, our hobbies, our decisions, our Values, our decision-making, our ethics, our stewardships, whatever they are, we plunge into them in the same manner in which Christ plunged into this world by emptying himself, by seeking no reputation for himself, by being despised at times and being mocked, and by even forfeiting his own life. You're sure you don't need to take that moment. Heaven knows, Lord knows I needed to take that moment as I was preparing this talk. This is what the love of Christ compels in you if you are a Christ one. And this is what our world needs. Men and women, boys and girls, who are weak in the flesh and firm in the faith, whose lives reflect not themselves, but the brilliant light of Jesus Christ in such a way that they are forgotten and that Jesus is magnified. Obscurity is praiseworthy because God gets the glory. And if you're thinking, uh, that's not for me, you know that's a bit of a second-rate citizen, that doesn't make me feel very good. You don't get it. You don't get it. For we are, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though Christ were pleading through us, imploring people on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. This is the highest calling. If you're a Christian, you're an ambassador for Christ. For Christ, not for the letter, not for the law, not for Mary, not for the Pope, for Christ, for God himself, in whom the fullness of all deity dwells, in him who holds all things together by the power of his word, the one in whom, through whom, to whom, for whom are all things, to God be the glory forever. For that Christ, you are an ambassador. There is no higher calling. You are his emissary to the world. Are you kidding me? How glorious is that? not because of you, but in spite of you, because of He who shines through you. To see our lives as forfeit for the sake of Christ is not self-abasing, it's maturity. Because when we come to a place of recognizing that our life is not our own, that this land is not our home, we find the highest calling that there could ever be to be an ambassador for Christ, to be a people from a distant land who are, who are put here on this strange place called Newcastle <laughs> to reflect our King to those around us, that they may come to us and ask us for this peculiar hope that they seem to see within us, and that in sharing that hope with them, we may be a conduit of that compelling love of Christ, that they may see that, and that they may want to know what that hope is and who this Christ is and that they may too join the kingdom and be an ambassador alongside you and leave behind the kings of this world and, and follow the king of kings and the lord of lords and as a citizen of his kingdom join with you as an ambassador. For so that's what he is. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. And if people aren't going to bow now out of love and adoration for him then there is a day coming when they will bow because their knees are broken by he who rules the nations with a rod of iron. The world can laugh all they want. Let them laugh. Let them mock. Let them strike you. And when they strike you, turn the other cheek. Not as a martyr, not by finding your piety in being struck down, but because the love of Christ compels you. Turn the other cheek. Let him laugh. Because there is no higher calling that you could have on your life if you're a Christian than to be an ambassador for the Most High King. It wasn't Pharaoh, it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar, it wasn't the Persian monarchs that made the change. It was Joseph in a prison. It was Daniel castrated and thrown into a furnace. It was Nehemiah. It was Esther. It was men and women who remained through it all because of not who they were, but because of who their king was and where their allegiance was in the land that they found themselves. The one true king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. If you know this king, if you know this king, then you know Jesus. And like these men and women of old, you have the assurance of a deliverance that's far greater than the exodus of Egypt. That's far greater than the bondage of Babylon. You have the assurance of deliverance from the prison of sin, from that plate of pig garbage. (laughs) And the exile of the estrangement of you and God by the compelling love of Christ. That is what you have a hope in. That is who you are. That is what is true of you. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't know, but as I went through that, it's just not what I expected to be saying. But here we are. This is where evangelism starts. It starts with you before Christ. We have no business talking about it. No business walking the streets telling people about Jesus unless we know who we are before Jesus. So let me just pray. And um, yeah, I hope to see you guys soon and, and hang out. Heavenly Father, I just come to you in this moment. And I just pray for anyone who may be listening to this and may be confronting the tough question of whether or not they truly know you. God, tear down the strongholds in their life. Break them. Break them. May they repent and may they put their trust in you. Break down the lie of self-sufficiency even in the lives of us who know you. As we continue to wrestle in this body of death, may the compelling love of Christ just recommit us right now so that we hate our sin and get rid of it. Lord knows I hate my sin. I hate it. I'm so tired of this war. Remind me of how great you are of the the fact that you who is in me is greater than he that is in the world. I need to hear that, God. Tell me it daily. Wash me daily with the truth of that compelling love of Christ. Move me. Because God, I'm not hanging like a corpse on the cross. You did that so that I didn't have to. May I not walk in the shadow of death, but walk in the brilliant dawn of the light beyond that empty tomb. Because that's what you've called me to. That's where I am. And may it be so, and may be evidenced in my life. I pray that for everyone listening, particularly if they've been walking with you for years, just recapture the wonder in our hearts of who you are. May we be returned to this love that compels us. And may we be faithful witnesses in whatever places you have us, in this city, in this town, in the nations, wherever you are listening in. May we be a people in whom and through whom your love flows. And may we be forgotten, and may you be glorified. In your name, your most precious name, the only name, by which and in which and through whom we can be saved, Jesus, Lord, we bring our requests and our petitions to you now. Amen.